Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast, brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the City Law School's Law and Society podcast with me, Dr. Sabrina Germain. For episode six today on feminism and intersectionality, we turn the tables on our very own co-host of the podcast, Dr. Adrian Young. Adrian, it is so great to have you finally as a guest on the podcast. I can't wait to talk all things intersectionality with you, as I know it is a big area of your research and our research, really. Um, perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about you and your research in this area so far. Yes, of course, Sabrina. Thanks so much for having me as a guest on the podcast. It's lovely to have the tables turned on me. You all know me already as Senior Lecturer in Law at the City Law School and the co-host, of course, of this podcast. But more specifically, uh, my background is actually in EU law. So I did most of my research originally on EU citizenship and EU fundamental rights, so European human rights in general. And when Brexit hit the UK around 2016, I started to shift my research a little bit to look more specifically at women in the EU, especially migrant women who would be particularly affected by the UK's withdrawal from the EU. And in doing so, I expanded my research area a bit more into immigration law because of the lack of EU framework. And from then, I also started to look more widely at feminist approaches to EU law and intersectionality as well. And then I met Sabrina, or we decided to rather come together, and I used my expertise with migration and immigration and feminist perspectives and intersectionality to apply to the access to healthcare and barriers to access to healthcare expertise that Sabrina had in the context of what we were living in, which was the pandemic. So I kind of decided that my focus was on women's rights during crises, the crises of Brexit and the crises of COVID. And here we are. And now I've done a lot of work on feminism, on intersectionality, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you all today about that. Okay, so how about we start by looking a little bit at the history behind um, the feminist movement to give us an anchor point um, or multiple anchor points. Could you tell us about the roots of the movement and, and what it, it is all about, really? Yes, sure. So feminist history is largely Western, and it mostly started out in the U.S., This is very much like all of our other critical legal study theories, like we've talked about in episode four, critical race theory. And it is important to point out the Western history and the Western roots of feminist movements and the critical movement as well, because we will return to why this is particularly an issue and how intersectionality in particular developed out of this notion that it is from the West. So we will for now, however, focus on feminism and the history of feminism leading up to and beyond intersectionality, but just to keep that Western history and origins in mind. The feminist movement preceded the legal theory of feminist legal theory itself. And in this way, the feminist movement is very much born out of politics. And that makes it so interdisciplinary because it has all of this roots in other things that are not the law. And it was in the 1830s until about the 1900s that the first wave, it's known as, was occurring. The first wave of the feminist movement is very much characterized by this big fight that women in particular had against the fact that they did not have equal rights in contract, in property, and also in voting. So no right to vote, not allowed to own property, not allowed to enter into contracts, business contracts. And this was particularly unequal for them. They were very unhappy with this. It in the UK was known as the suffragette movement. And you may have heard of this. It's very, very famous, the suffragettes. 
The founder of the suffragettes is Emmeline Pankhurst, and the main idea of the suffragettes was indeed to very, very, very much disrupt and have physical confrontations. This was a massive tactic for the suffragettes. Damage was done to property, they broke windows, they burnt things in the street, they made a huge protest, and they got a lot of attention this way. And it became very, very interesting. So some might have argued that all of this criminal damage, um, this disruption, this physical confrontation would have been, as I said, you know, a type of criminal damage. And that's obviously not very in line with the law. But many others argue, particularly feminists, and I think I agree with this, that without making some sort of big show like this and without, you know, breaking things and causing a big scene, people would really not have taken these women seriously enough because they were already so oppressed for various different reasons. And it would only have been because they made a big noise that they could have gotten the attention of the government, etc., all these men. So that was the first wave of feminism, all about very much the equal rights to contract, the legal rights, basically. Then after this, once the suffragette movement actually worked, we had the second wave of feminism, which was from about the 1960s until the 1990s. And that was the era where since women had gotten the vote, they had their contractual rights, they had their proprietary rights women started to realize we needed to focus more on other inequalities beyond just basic what was known as suffering, which is what the suffragette movement is kind of you know named after. So it is here in the second wave of feminism where context starts to become all the more important. And the way that I see it is that first wave feminism is probably more about you know the law and the rights kind of part. So the law around contract, the law around property, the law around uh, voting and the right to vote. But now in second wave feminism, we speak more about society and how society perceives women and the inequalities, sometimes more hidden inequalities, like cultural expectations of women, like stereotypes, like um, their role in certain locations, like in the home. And this is where I think that the start of modern feminism and women's liberation could be said to have begun. This second wave is a lot of the substance of the discussion that we teach and that we kind of see in society today. This includes things like family law, which is a lot about uh, divorce and parents' rights or fathers' rights rather in divorce, about children, about bringing up the children, about caring responsibilities, but also it comes around in criminal law. So in the areas of domestic violence, which is very much gendered, and of course, rape, which is incredibly gendered. So it was a lot in this wave about bringing attention to these kinds of equalities, because now that women actually had the vote, they had contractual rights and they had proprietary rights. Some argued that it is not enough to just have this and they needed to be equal in other ways than just kind of on the facet of the law. And it was in this area that actually second wave feminism brought a lot of criticism as well, which, to be fair, is also levied against first wave feminism in the context of the fact that it focused a lot on rights, particularly of white women. And in doing so, this ignored a lot of black and other ethnic minorities who were also women and LGBT women. So it was very much about the majority group of women or the dominant group of women, which were the white women. And therefore, towards the end of the second wave, black feminists were seeking civil rights also. And they also sought rights for other marginalized groups too, realizing that feminism actually didn't capture the full picture. And this is where you can maybe see where intersectionality becomes a much, much bigger deal. So now that we've rattled through, first wave feminism was all about contract, right to voting, property, second wave, more about those hidden inequalities, but with a bit of a issue in terms of only really protecting dominant white women, we now look at the third wave of feminism, in which there was a huge new movement, and this was during the, around the 1990s, all the way up to about the 2010s, 
Um, and there was a much, much bigger focus on what we consider to be rejecting this feminist label and the categories of identity that shoehorn certain women into certain stereotypes. So in a way, given that second wave feminism was about bringing to fore, you know, hidden inequalities, third wave feminism was even more so about this, but it wasn't so much in, in what we consider to be those stereotypes of women generally. It was more nuanced than that. So in the third wave, they really redefined what it meant to be a feminist. And in the second wave, there was actually quite a lot of what we might consider radical feminism. Uh, radical feminism is arguably a teensy little bit polemic and is sometimes perceived to be what is known as misandry, the, the hatred of men, uh, which we can indeed speak about more later if you want me to talk about that. But for now, we'll talk about the third wave feminism and the most important part of it, which is intersectionality. And I'm so glad that this happened because it's really changed the face of my work. And basically, this is about recognizing that women were much more than just their genders. It was the fact that you also being an ethnic minority or a migrant or of a certain class, race, intersects with your gender. And therefore, it creates this unique form of oppression, which is often invisible because it is overshadowed what, by what is known as single axis identity. So just being you know, a certain gender or just being a certain race or just being a certain class. It is really important to note that people do have these intersecting identities and this single axis idea was really quite limited. And this is what is now the main hot topic, especially for you and I, Sabrina. So intersectionality and uncovering more layers and nuance to the feminist debates from its origins as just being originally about votes and rights to what law in context and rights in context and society really now means for all types of women is what we want to really focus on. And this indeed has now really fed into the fourth wave of feminism, which we are experiencing at the moment. So a few other things characterize the fourth wave, um, which you and I particularly love to talk about, especially in the law, and that is technology and the internet. So for feminism, it was also the intersectionality argument and giving women a greater voice and more power that is so important in this fourth wave. Having recognized now that, you know, intersectionality does exist, people are more than just their genders, just a woman or just a certain class or just a certain race. And I suppose because we're talking now more about giving women and lots of types of women a greater voice and more power, this is why law is so closely related to it. As originally it was about the power to vote and the power to get property, etc. at the outset. And now it's just about having power more generally and perhaps being able to reshape the agenda of lawmaking and of what rights we enjoy and how law actually applies to certain people. And a very, very big part of the fourth wave that our listeners may definitely have heard of is, of course, the Me Too movement, the hashtag Me Too movement, um, which is known as hashtag activism. And you also may be aware of other hashtag activism. And this is a way that the women or whoever it is that wants to be an activist gets their voices out there using technology, using the internet. It gets the voices in Me Too of women who have been oppressed, who had been harassed, or who had been silenced over the years to come out, use the, use the hashtag, give their story online. And it is really almost about making the invisible or the unheard now visible and heard through Twitter in this case, or maybe Instagram kind of later on, but Twitter originally. So that is also my aim, my intention, our aim with our research. And that is my little contribution to the fourth wave of feminism, to give voices to certain of these women who are not heard, who are invisible. Absolutely fascinating, Adrian. Um, I knew this. I knew that we were both sitting at the feet of these great feminists and these movements. I think it's fantastic to see how we embody ourselves, um, this fourth wave of feminism, not only through our research, but our identity, our intersecting experiences as well. So um, it's a very exciting conversation, as usual, with you. But I want to know a little bit more about 
feminist legal theory? Was it born out of a social movement, just like feminism? Or would you say that it links more to the critical legal studies movement? Yes, let's bring it back to law a little bit after I've talked all about this history. After all, my background is indeed in law. Uh, so feminism and feminist legal theory in particular did begin initially as an amalgamation of experiences of various people, women, um, in a very similar way that critical race theory and critical legal studies did. So it's most definitely a strand of critical legal studies and therefore definitely links to the other critical legal studies movements that we've been talking about. Um, and you'll certainly see a lot of overlap between the two. However, in answer to your question, whether it was out of the social movement or is it linked to just CLS, uh, critical legal studies, I do think that feminist legal theory gained a lot of traction and it needed to and had to because of the social movement of feminism in general, the history that we just talked about. It also definitely links to critical legal studies, um, but in a way, the social movement and the critical legal studies movement are kind of one in the same, because I don't think that the critical legal studies movement, critical race theory, and a lot of those theories from um, under the umbrella of critical legal studies could have come to be without actually being a bit of a movement, you know? So the idea of feminist legal theory is that it is the grand theory. And this is a grand theory that was created in order to bring together social movements in feminism to the mainstream. And in a way, because we lawyers love codes and codifying things, in a way sort of to make it formalized. It's very interesting because this idea of the grand theory is often pitted against women's amalgamation of a lot of unique experiences. Um, and of course, the unique experiences, the voices are largely what feminist legal theory is based on, but it is certainly not entirely stories and unique experiences. I would like to think of feminist legal theory as a lens now from which I use and feminist legal theorists and intersectionality theories, theorists rather, use to view, to analyze, to interpret law from. So in this way, we see things from a woman's perspective. And why is this important? Well, it's important because the law arguably has been set up historically to exclude them because of who has historically actually even been given rights to begin with. And this is just an irrefutable fact because in history, women have been legally excluded from many walks of public life. I think this is very interesting because it echoes a lot of what we have seen about critical race theory, which is one of my um, interests of research. We, we see how all these movements are really part of the same family of critical legal studies in a way and echo each other. It's about not being seen, being underrepresented, but also it's not just about anecdotes. It's about um, an experience that, that transfers into a lens, into an approach, into a theoret theoretical framework. So I think that's fascinating. It's great. Definitely. And we have also talked with you in episode number two of the comparative lens. So in a way, all these theories that we're speaking about on the podcast are simply lenses or, you know, they could be considered lenses from which to see the law. And in this way, we are trying to bring to attention to everybody out there, to our listeners, to the public, that there are different ways of viewing the law and that we want everybody to really see all these different ways of viewing the law so that the law can be enriched and can be improved to achieve, you know, perhaps greater justice, if that's what we think law is set up to be. As Professor Luke Mason talked about in episode one, it's all coming together. And that's definitely a thread. So I'm so glad that you, you raised this because anybody astute who have been listening to episodes one to six would definitely have noticed this as well, or hopefully anyway. And now we've said it. However, the fact that, of course, women being legally excluded from many walks of public life, from voting, from owning uh, property, from being in contracts, etc., brings me very much to my next point. And that's the theory, um, the history behind feminist legal theory itself. And the fact that feminist legal theory even became a thing, became a theory to begin with, a recognized one. 
And it was indeed argued by uh, Martha Feynman that women primarily sit in the private sphere rather than the public sphere. And what does this mean? I think this is quite an important point. And I think that Martha Feynman explains this very, very well. And it kind of, kind of explains a lot of how or why women have been oppressed for so long. Basically, the private sphere covers things like the home and the family and personal life, you know, all the things you would consider to be part of your private life, if you thought about it that way. The public sphere, in comparison, would perhaps be considered as, let's think, say, things like work or outside relationships or outside responsibilities. So in the public, let's say, I. And you can probably already see why women were excluded from the public sphere, because the home, personal life, family life, they are not always areas that are so strongly governed or so strongly regulated by law. Maybe we wouldn't say that that would be the first place that we would want to go to regulate or to govern. But public life, like especially work or public relationships, certainly are governed and regulated by law. And that way, because the home and family life were perhaps not the first place to go to regulate, it led to women who were mainly in the private sphere being excluded under the law from areas in which in particular they would benefit from a significant amount of protection. So we're not actually talking about governing and, you know, putting regulations on them to control them. In this case, we're talking a little bit more about being excluded from protection, because I would say that a lot of people would say law is there maybe to protect. So if we view it in this way, women were excluded from this legal protection rather than, let's say, legal control. Feminist legal theory today is now all about a woman's relationship to the law and method is the theory in this case. So the legal form is steeped in power and it's very limited as such because it's steeped in so much power and women have so little power. So the theory itself, as we say, it's a way to view the law. It's a lens. It's a perspective that we want to encourage people to be able to see from. And that's what we do in our research. Bring that idea, that attention, that lens out. This is how we see it. And you'll not know if you don't consider it in this way. And importantly, though, the thing to note about feminist uh, legal theory is that it is not gender neutral because neutrality is difficult and it's an ideal that we are seeking to obtain in a world. And we need to rather accept that actually there are biases and there are prejudices that exist, whether we like it or not. Very much in line with this whole point that we made in episode four about the colorblindness. We are not colorblind. We are also not gender blind if we're going to use it that way. So we need to accept that there are these biases and these prejudices and work around them rather than just saying they don't exist. And feminist legal theory is specifically in favor of the female perspective. And therefore, it is also important that we must go beyond legal doctrine, which not, does not necessarily always see things from the female perspective. A very good quote from Martha Feynman sums this all up, and that is that law represents both a discourse and a process of power. So it's a discussion and a process of power. Norms created by and enshrined in law are manifestations of power relationships. That's a very interesting quote, um, and it sparks in me another question. Given that the Law and Society podcast and uh, all of our guests have answered uh, our question about the definition of the law, and you've done so in episode four for us, do you think that this is uh, reflective of what your view of the law is? And in that case, law is limited in some ways, isn't it? Um, maybe particularly for uh, feminist legal theory and the like. What do you think? An extremely good question. And certainly one that is sparked from, from Martha Feynman's quote. And I think for me, as I did say in episode four, my view of the law and the definition of it is very much influenced by learning about all these various theories um, and the ones especially that I apply and that I am studying. So the feminist and intersectionality theories in particular. So I do agree with Martha Feynman in that law represents a form of expression of power, a process of power, as she puts it. However, I also agree that we can certainly change it if we engage in a proper debate and a critical analysis of how the law actually applies 
as and is interpreted differently to all groups of people affected. So that speaks to her uh, bit about the discourse. So it's a discourse, a debate, a discussion, but actually it's also, we have to accept a process of power and the expression of power. So as for the second part of your question about law being limited in some ways, if it is indeed this process of power or whatever, then we need to think of it as not just this. It's very limited if we think of it as just an expression of power. We have to challenge the law, I really believe, rather than what we consider maybe assimilating or equalizing into it. And the reason for this is that I think that otherwise we'll just marginalize the marginalized voices like women and all of the different intersectionalities of women and other groups. Uh, Their voices will be marginalized even further because that is just an expression of power dynamics. And those expressions of power dynamics already are set up to exclude women and all these other marginalized groups. Therefore, if we challenge or we change the law, different experiences of women then become the law. And that's the basis of feminist legal theory, hearing the experiences of women to shape how the law is then actually operating in practice to inspire a bit more change, especially where inequalities are rife. And that's what you and I do, Sabrina. We want to inspire change in the area of healthcare and access to healthcare because we saw tons of inequalities in that area. And indeed, some might argue that why don't we just use lawyers, you know, have good lawyers to represent and to have certain viewpoints put forward when they are, you know, in court or whatever. But the argument from Feynman, actually, is that presence in the legal profession is just simply not enough. And the diversity, especially in the UK, I would say, of the legal profession has been extremely slow and it is not progressive enough. Um, So the diversity of of the legal profession in the UK is definitely a discussion for another forum, and I'm certainly not an expert. But this is definitely an important point if we're saying that the law is there to kind of solve our problems, uh, such as of gender inequality, because those who are deciding, let's say, outcomes of cases or, you know, how the law should apply are not always the ones who actually suffer any inequality. So we need more voices and it's not just through lawyers because that's not good enough. So it's going to be through academics like yourself and myself, Sabrina, ethnic minority women, migrant women as well in the academy fighting for voices to be heard. So another great quote from Feynman again is on this. I promise this is the last one from her. That is that legal rules will tend to track and reflect the dominant conclusions of the majority culture. And I think that really sums it up. And the most important thing, therefore, is to ensure that we differentiate as well between the women themselves so that the dominant conclusions of the majority culture, as Feynman says, don't just get heard. It is important not to homogenize the group of women in general, as we are not all the same. And you and I already know that as well, Sabrina, um, for many, many reasons. And this is just not always reflected in the law or even in the discourse and in the history, as we saw first wave and second wave feminism kind of not realizing it until the 1990s or so. So much is coming up in my mind about this, but I will leave it to uh, later because we will be discussing most probably, I hope, a little bit about our research. But so many things around the right to abortion in the United States and the composition of their Supreme Court uh, are really an echo to what you're saying, but also understanding that sexual and reproductive rights, for example, something I teach to my medical law students, is something that is also um, unique to women's experiences and not all women experience or are capable of um, fulfilling their rights in the same way. So I think that's very interesting and I really uh, look forward to more discussions on this. It's such a great point. Essentially, feminist legal theory or feminism is not always what uh, people make it out to be. And a lot of people think it is about hating men. A lot of people we talk to think that. But it's more complex than this. Uh, I think you would agree with me. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier. So how would you say it differs from misandry, which is the hate of men, essentially, right? Yes, I really want to talk about this because I think that this was a bit where my story kind of began about becoming a feminist or identifying as a feminist. And it was as early as Uh, you know, about five years or so ago, uh, I would say that being a feminist was 
widely viewed, and maybe in some circles, it's still viewed in this way, but being a radical feminist, so this kind of stereotypical, like bra-burning, hysterical woman, is what it is to be just generally a feminist. Um, And of course, this maybe comes from the fact that back in the first wave, the suffragettes did indeed do things like burn bras and break things and, you know, go out into the street and really make a make a cause a scene, which not everybody would necessarily agree with. And of course, back in those days, women were prim and proper. So that was very crazy for them to do that. But I think that this idea of a feminist simply being a crazy, hysterical, stereotypical, bra-burning kind of woman is in and of itself an incredibly sexist rhetoric. And I actually think that the patriarchy has created this idea, and it is to oppress women, to silence them, or at least to discredit their arguments. So we need to speak about that. And personally, back in the day when I didn't really identify as a feminist, it was because I didn't want to be known as a radical feminist. You know, I didn't want people to think I was a difficult, hysterical, bra-burning woman. And, you know, after all, I have a father. I also have a brother. I know men. I know many good men. So why would I be a man-hater? That seems silly to me. And formally, this is what effectively misandry is. So that's the hate or the contempt for men. However, I think it's so important to get across to everybody that radical feminism is not necessarily this. Perhaps some parts are, but feminism itself is certainly not all misandry and man-hating. And it's a big misconception that I would like to debunk right now that all feminists hate men. And my strong view is that it is entirely untrue because feminism seeks to achieve equality. And equality should also be about refuting those dangerous male stereotypes that exist, such as in the best example is family law, where there is a presumption against fathers being able to have the custody of their children. That's simply because they, you know, women are perceived to be the main primary carers and that is not good for men. And I don't think that that's acceptable. And I don't think that that's very feminist either. Also, something to note is that International Women's Day is March the 8th, and we love to celebrate it, and it's quite widely known. And sometimes men's rights activists ask us in um, kind of opposition, when is International Men's Day? And the answer to that is that it is November 19th, actually. So there is International Men's Day. um, And you can, you know, people can look this up if they're interested. It effectively celebrates the positive contribution of men to society, refuting those stereotypes that I talked about in family law and in many other areas, which affect men negatively in the patriarchy. And I would argue perhaps contribute to male toxicity. I do think, however, given all of this, that The history of oppression that women face, the very blatant inequality of not being able to vote, not being able to own property, and so, so much else, simply for being women, means that women are factually on a back foot already. They started from a back foot. So sadly, we have to step them up to achieve equality. And sometimes, and that means, and accepting, and I think I accept this, It's not that we can start always from a level playing field because women have not started from a level playing field historically to begin with. So to get to equality, we have to push certain people up. So interesting. And um, I I, I just think I should share, uh, funnily enough, being a a woman from Canada, but more specifically from Quebec, we're known um, very internationally as being extremely feminist. We have anchored our places in society. We're very proud of it. There's still progress to be made, of course, um, even though we've made uh, great steps ahead. But we always answer to the March 8th question on Women's Day that we celebrate men every single other day. So they don't need a day. But now I know November 19 is actually one of their days. They will be very pleased. All these men in Quebec will be very pleased to be celebrated on that day, too. But I agree with you. I was always shy to say to everybody that I was a feminist, even growing up, even though I grew up in an environment that very much celebrated women and I have a lot of women in my family. I think there is a prejudice to saying I stand for women because in a way you seem to be looked at as hating men. But it's really not about that. Um, It's really about actually leveling the playing field. Like you said, it's not really equal at the moment. So um, it's working towards that. Yes, and definitely the 
answer to the March 8th question and, you know, why do we have an International Women's Day and not an International Men's Day? I mean, we do have an International Men's Day. It's less well known. But yes, I could not agree more about the fact that, yes, men are celebrated every day. And that's not to take away from International Men's Day, but I totally agree. Absolutely. So very interesting. But in some respect, we see that the law is unable to establish really an equality in the relationships, like we're saying. Equality in treatment might be possible. But what we aim at, really, and, and that's something that we were talking about as well with race, is substantive um, equality. And we have substantive inequality at the moment. So why are we not achieving this? Yes, I do think we have not yet attained substantive equality and that's a sad fact and yes you said we talked about it in race and certainly not in gender so it's a sad fact because law embeds dominant power relations and we've seen this time and time again and in many areas of this podcast actually and uh, we will probably continue to discuss this in in a lot of the other episodes going forward And the idea of the podcast and of what I want to do in my research is to bring many more voices to the table in order to really challenge law, to push for more substantive equality. Social change cannot occur if it is just legal, in my opinion. So I wanted to uh, say that, you know, some of our listeners might be thinking, what does this actually mean when they say equal treatment is not the same as substantive equality? So basically, formal equality in the way that kind of we see it, I think, is that it's where the law states that something great like equal treatment, non-discrimination is to be achieved. So formally, it is to be granted in its doctrine, in the acts, in the formal written down version of the law, in its black letter. So it says equal treatment shall be granted or something of that sort. That's formal equality. However, when we actually scratch under the surface and look beyond the tip of the iceberg, just saying at the top that we have equal treatment, the law stating this, you know, formally in its code is not actually achieving the equal treatment it says it's going to achieve in substance. And that's where substantive equality comes in. So the easiest way to think about it is law does not equal equality even though that's what many people perceive it to be. And formal equality is all well and good to have law saying something, but then applying it and interpreting it and experiencing it is not what the formal equality says it's going to do. And the substantive reality is a lack of equality, let's say. And that's actually what we want to get across in all of these podcasts. So in this way as well, That's where experience becomes so, so much more important because by us examining experiences rather than legal doctrine itself, rather than ex you know, looking just at what the law says, we can develop theories like feminist legal theory, critical race theory, all of these political theories rather than ones that are just legally focused since the law does have its limits for all the reasons we've talked about. And it makes these areas super interdisciplinary as a result. That's great. You're making a great case for sociolegal studies, uh, as always, which is amazing. Great. So I think we have a clear picture, picture of what the basic principles um, or the approach of feminist, uh, feminist legal theory is. It is um, very complex and a rich movement with many sub-approaches, uh, as we can see. What I would like to understand now is how it differs or how does it relate to intersectionality? Uh, you are very much an expert and I wonder whether you could give us a simple and clear definition of what intersectionality is. Sure. Uh, I'm very passionate about this. And I think that intersectionality and the lens that it gives really has lifted my research and I've really taken to adopting this theoretical approach now. I think it's kind of understudied in many, many areas and it's really rewarding for me to contribute to bringing these important voices to the forefront of attention through the lens of intersectionality. But you asked me for a very clear and simple definition of intersectionality. Basically, intersectionality came about, and we have to talk a bit about the history here before we get the clear and simple definition. It came about because of the tendency, especially in the US, to make race and gender mutually exclusive. So that means you either consider one for the race or for their gender. 
And it was first introduced by the queen of intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a legal academic at UCLA. And you can look her up and read all of her work if you're interested. Basically, Crenshaw noticed that there was a particular problem with assuming all women's experiences are just the same and ignoring these intersections of various different characteristics or identity factors. And this was really important because discrimination actually extended beyond just discrimination on one's gender or discrimination on one's race. Sometimes it was a combination of all these things which led to a certain type of discrimination, which she coined intersectionality. A lot of her examples were about Black women facing domestic violence in the US and how Black women in particular had a different experience from, let's say, just women or just a Black individual. So the simple and clear definition of intersectionality, it is about looking at somebody's identity more than just on a single axis, as I mentioned before, it's considering their unique experience as a multiply oppressed, let's say, intersecting identity. She noticed that in race discrimination, when we looked at discrimination on the grounds of race, the focus was very much on race, but sadly, it was also very much on class-privileged women. So, you know, richer women who were of color. In sex discrimination, the focus was actually on sex and of gender, but also it was often about class-privileged Black individuals. So it was about rich Black women, let's say. And this focus on the most privileged, so it would be people with the most power or the people with the most dominant voices, the focus on the most privileged we undermine the experiences and the identities of those who are multiply burdened, it's known as. So single axis characteristics, like just their gender or just their race, without noting that they actually overlap, is undermining the experience and the identity of those people who do have overlaps. So exclusion in this way really cannot be understood by just trying to shoehorn them into into the single axes of just their genders or just their race or just their class, whatever it might be, because each individual's experiences are unique and distinct because they're at the intersection of gender and race and class or whatever it might be, immigration status, what I do. And this has to be recognized very specifically. Very interesting. And I think I should uh, also add to this, because this is something that you explained to me greatly, is that it's not because you're multiply burdened that you're uh, necessarily more at a disadvantage than somebody that isn't, but it means that your experience is unique and different from that individual. We will talk about this a little bit later, but for example, we saw that ethnic minority men during the pandemic um, suffered greater fatalities than, than women, but it doesn't mean that ethnic minority women, particularly migrant ethnic minority women, didn't have a different experience than ethnic minority men. So some people said, well, they were less affected. They died less in, in lesser numbers. Well, that's not what intersectionality is trying to make as a point. It's making a point that it's a different experience, right? So that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, but could you flesh out now more explicitly how this theory or approach is used uh, in your study and our study and analysis of the law. I think you will unpack this further. Yes, certainly. I have to say, as I mentioned, that I credit everything to Kimberly Crenshaw and her very excellent seminal paper from 1989. So just before the third wave of feminism hit and this paper demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex, she uses three excellent employment law cases as examples to show how this theory actually applies in practice. Because without these kind of concrete examples, some might argue that intersectionality is quite abstract, especially since, you know, you're saying that it, you know, and and I, you know, I'd certainly said this as well. It's not about adding extra layers and not saying like, I am more unprivileged because I have so many different things um, applying to me. It's actually about your unique voice. So we're going to have a look at these three cases just to see how Crenshaw put it out there. And then we can talk a little bit more about it in the context of you and my uh, research, Sabrina. 
So the first case we can talk about that Crenshaw talks about in this article is the de Graffenreid case. And in the de Graffenreid case, it, all of these are from the US as Crenshaw is based there. The company uh, was in trouble because they did not hire any black women. And this was in the heyday of equality and civil rights and all of those things. So the company did not hire any black women. That was discrimination. However, the company did hire some white women. So their claim was that there was no sex discrimination because whilst there was no black women, there were white women. So the gender kind of argument was not there. The claim itself, and this is super important, was clearly not just a race claim, but it was treated as, as such, and therefore the black women could not win because they had homogenized them into the just women category. Black men were hired, white women were hired, so there was no problem. They were kind of covered on the race side because there were black men, and on the women's side because there were white women. So then, in the second case of Moore and Hughes Helicopter, there was another company, again, all employment law cases, being accused of passing up women for promotion opportunities. This really makes my blood boil. Moore was required to choose which class of individuals she was claiming on behalf of, whether she was arguing for gender or whether she was arguing on the race side. So Moore chose gender, and sadly, for that reason, her claim failed because the argument was that she just did not represent all women. She was just representing black women and she could not prove herself that all women were affected. She could only prove it from her side, black women. And so that really, again, narrows kind of the categories. Then finally, in the case of Travenol, there was a group of black women who claimed race discrimination in the company on behalf of all black individuals in the company itself. And again, this was rejected by the courts as they believed that these black women did not represent black men. They could only represent black women. So their race-based claim was not acceptable, especially based on the Moore and Hughes helicopter um, case. In Travenol, the good news is that they did win in the end and they did claim their discrimination case. But the issue to highlight is that these black women all failed initially because the courts did not recognize intersectionality. They could not fathom that you were not just a woman and speaking on behalf of all women, and you were not just a black person speaking on behalf of all black people, but they were black women. So they spoke for women and they spoke for black women in particular. And so sadly, what the whole saga shows actually is that on the one hand, they are not like white women enough, but nor are they like black. And when we say black, we mean men, black men enough. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy, but not unheard of, uh, obviously. I, I think it echoes a lot of the discussions people are having about categorization, about terms around ethnicity as well, around uh, BAME, people of color, etc., and also about the, the nuance that are not there in language. So we like to tick box and say, oh, you're, you're part of this minority, but the fact that your gender could be part of this identity that is underrepresented or more vulnerable is not accounted for. I think it's very interesting and very important to bring that to the fore. So I know that you're very much on the same page uh, as me on this, and we have explored issues that arise from individual with intersecting uh, identities. But I believe not all are uh, great proponents of this approach. So if you had to voice quickly, what are the main critiques of this uh, movement or approach? Yes, there's always a critic, and we're good lawyers, so we're going to consider all these criticisms but of course, my job is to debunk them as I see fit, because I actually believe that intersectionality is an excellent theory. And, you know, you said it, you're on the same page as me. So let's have a look. The main issues I'd say people have about intersectionality are mostly to do with misunderstanding. And I'm so glad that you raised this uh, point before earlier, Sabrina, about the layers and it not being about layers. It's actually about a distinct identity, because that's the first Intersectionality is misunderstood as being overlapping or additional burdens and just all these layers of oppression more and more and more added on top of each other. And people then think that it is 
now become about layering up all the different things people face. So if you're poor, if you're black, if you're a woman, if you're LGBT, they add all these things up and they're like, look how badly I'm treated because I have all these different discriminations that I face. That's not it. It's about actually the fact that all of those things means that you have a unique identity. And so therefore, this argument is not even a critique per se. It's just a general misunderstanding that we've got to be clear about at this point here. It, it suggests that people appear to experience just racism, just sexism, just xenophobia, or whatever else it might be. And intersectionality is not about that. It is about noticing that people experience all these forms of discrimination. And because they experience all these forms of discrimination, the experience is that these various forms amount to one unique form of oppression that is overlooked because of the existence of the other isms and phobias like racism, sexism, xenophobia, homophobia, etc. You can see, therefore, from the three cases that Crenshaw highlights in her article, it is a huge issue because it means certain individuals are reduced to having to choose almost what their identity is, whether they identify as a woman or whether they identify as black. And that just does not encompass their experiences or even their identity. I don't think I could choose one or the other, really. And it is not always obvious. So we have a duty, in my opinion, to bring this to light. So that's the first one. That's the misunderstanding I want to get clear. In the other critiques of intersectionality, another argument is that intersectionality does not adequately address the root cause of social inequality. Now, this is kind of a tough one because critical legal studies, critical race theory are also critiqued in a way for the same thing. That doesn't really solve any problems. But intersectionality in particular, I would say to debunk this argument, is a theory that aims to highlight issues rather than perhaps seeking to solve them. And I would probably say that about CLS and CRT as well. And like I mentioned earlier on, it's kind of the same as the colorblind argument where people say we should not see skin color and then we won't be racist and that'll be the resolution. But it's sadly not the case. My rebuttal to that is that we cannot just ignore a problem if it exists and it does exist and we're just burying it. And it's not been given sufficient attention over the years. So Crenshaw shows how it does actually exist, the problem. And that's what we are trying to do, I think, Sabrina. We try to bring it to the fore and be like, actually, this is a problem. We can't just say it's not there. And another issue as well that some people raise is that race and gender are sometimes too much focused on in intersectionality. And indeed, as we talk in this podcast, that's the one that I talked about most. We talked about uh, black women a lot, especially in context of Crenshaw. She definitely focuses on race and gender. And it's similar to critical race theory critiques, again, about the black community being too much focused on. Indeed, though, this, I think, is now being addressed. And it can only be addressed and it can only be resolved if we're just aware and if we just allow people to bring things to the fore. And I think this is perhaps where uh, the argument stemmed from, because it's such a big, huge theory now, intersectionality. And in my own work to kind of combat this critique, I look at class in terms of migrant status. And even within migrant status, I look at in the EU context, you know, the different types of Europeans, Eastern Europeans versus the dominant uh other side, Germany, France, etc. And class has become now a massive category, which has a lot of focus and attention. So I do think that perhaps at the beginning, this was something that they focused on a lot, but we can do something about that. And we should be given the opportunity to do so, not just be critiqued for it. Finally, and the most difficult one is that the biggest issue is that some people think privileged white men are not focused on enough. Now, I think this argument speaks for itself. And sadly, I just don't think it's a very strong argument whatsoever. And I think that this argument is very much linked around uh, meritocracy a lot. So meritocracy, mainly rewarding people on the basis of merit rather than anything else. And lots of feminists and critical scholars really argue against meritocracy because it's 
uh, premised in my in my view as well on a very flawed basis women and certain races and classes of individuals would have to be assumed to have had absolute equal opportunities in order to gain the merit that meritocracies seek to reward and to grant rights and protection on and we simply have not certain races certain classes of individuals simply have not had those equal opportunities it's as i said before we've got to raise people up the history speaks for itself in the context of women and therefore i can rebut the privileged white man argument by saying that they've already had all the attention on them and this is just not really about them sorry I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the kind of groundbreaking moments of our generation, if I can speak to us youngsters that we are, um, Adrian, is that um, when we had this whole Black Lives Matters movement, I remember looking on my Instagram and seeing all those black screens saying, well, no more we will accept um, to have this kind of lens or skewed view of what race and marketing should be because a lot of companies jumped on that bandwagon and saying enough um, there's police brutality but it goes beyond this it goes beyond the image that our brands are putting out there we don't have a lot of black women or men wearing our products or displayed so a lot of this younger generation like ours and younger people don't have any role models they don't even identify with the people wearing certain type of clothes so for me that was very groundbreaking it's something that spoke really much to to us as a young, younger generation. Um, and that, that was telling about the position of white male in our society because you never had a lack of white male being represented in marketing, for example. That being said, shall we look at some concrete, more concrete cases again? I think we can perhaps share uh, some of our research to, to, uh, with our listeners um, and how we have applied the theory in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'll let you start. And if I may, I'll just jump in um, here and there because there's so much to talk about. Definitely, you have to jump in because I would only be in the business of COVID-19, if we can put it that way, uh, because of you, really. So we are absolutely thrilled to be working in this area, despite, of course, how terrible it's been. So not to say that it is a great thing to be in the pandemic or anything like that, but we are very happy because it has certainly been really important for us to bring the questions and the voices from certain groups of women to the fore, which the pandemic has inspired in a way. In terms of concrete cases, we are so, so happy to have had our very first interdisciplinary article published in the Journal for Cultural Research at the beginning of 2022. And our paper is on ethnic minority and migrant women's intersectional experiences of accessing healthcare during COVID-19. My area of expertise is the migrant women's side. I would say that yours is more on the ethnic minority women's side. And then we put it through the lens of your expertise of access to healthcare and barriers to access to healthcare. And then we put that in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic to make it really topical. And it was a really timely publication, we think, and it came out of a really fantastic project that we were part of with Rupa Huck MP, who is the MP for Ealing Central and Acton, and some sociologists in Northumbria. And we also, from this, have developed another project, which we're also really proud of and we look forward to very much, and listeners should also look forward to, and that is our forthcoming edited collection, a book of 11 fantastic scholars in and outside of the law. And this edited collection is on the pandemic, and it is also where our intersectionality research kind of comes in. So a little bit of context, um, and feel free to jump in here, Sabrina. Back in mid-2020, we saw all these media headlines about, as you mentioned, ethnic minorities being disproportionately affected by the pandemic, fatality, mortality rates, hospitalization rates, the great equalizer, as some called it. But this kind of got us thinking, because how, how were women being affected in all of this? We were really thinking about how certain groups of women that we represented personally, migrant women we are, women of color, how women we represented personally may be uniquely affected, but not just because of gender or race or class. I think you're absolutely right. I think what was really interesting about this phenomenon, but all the back and forth that we had together is that just like the feminist legal theory movement, it was about 
personal experiences, accounts of people that we knew that were reporting different experiences with, for example, with childcare and not being able to access a GP appointment, digital poverty in communities not so far from us, even in London. That sparked in us kind of big reflection, me working on my COVID-19 research on the role of medical professionals and all of this, I started taking a step back and saying, well, what's happening with patients? And these particular type of patients or people that don't even know that they should be patients because of the lack of screening. So looking at not just um, ethnic minority men, because it was all over the headlines, wasn't it? It was always about men being in those, uh, for example, um, service jobs, uh, being on the front line, either um, healthcare workers or also security people. Uh, but then uh, women were kind of left in the shadows. They were left at home and um, no one was really looking at their experience. And I remember you and I trying to uncover this so much and we couldn't find much on the topic, right? Yeah, I think that there was, if there was a focus on women, it was always women in the home looking after their children because they couldn't go to work because we were working from home and they had to care for their children and it was very difficult homeschooling. You know, you certainly know how that felt. And I think that then we were thinking, oh, well, okay, so women are in the home and then there are, let's say, men in the, on the front line. But what about more combinations of that? And for me, I had actually been working on intersectionality in the context of Brexit, in the context of the EU settlement scheme in particular. And migrant women who were burdened by being migrants and not nationals of the UK, but also burdened as women. And because you, Serena, were the expert in healthcare law and policy, we decided to join forces and kind of look at you know, migrant women together, because there were a lot of discussions about migrants and their access to healthcare and even being eligible for healthcare uh, in my context with the EU after Brexit, whether they would lose rights to access healthcare. But of course, non-EU citizens had already experienced a lot of discrimination and difficulties well before that. Yeah, I think Exactly. It was kind of um, being intrigued about this issue, <laughs> about um, whether or not they could access the NHS. That was one of my questions. I remember turning to you and asking you about this because I am no EU lawyer. I think everybody <laughs> knows that. But equally, I was interested in understanding what was going on with these women as um, they were trying to access healthcare. I think what's interesting um, in looking at is, is that these uh, women were often portrayed in the media uh, if they were looked at with regards to issues that are relating typically to gender, which is maternal health. Um, and that was the main focus. And it was really narrow, not that it's not a great issue. And it really is a good exemplar, really, of what's going on with ethnic minority women in the medical space. There was a lot of talk about women not being cared for or dying more greatly on maternity wards, black women, um, than the average white woman. But nobody was trying to look at the cause. Everybody was uh, noticing and um, witnessing this tragedy, but we didn't under uh, understand the underlying root. I think the pandemic brought really to light the importance of public health, which was something that was not highlighted before, because that stems from unequal opportunities that affect ethnic minorities, but also medical uh, racialized perception, which is something that we would not talk a lot about, and that really ruffled some feathers when we talked about it. I remember when uh, our first article came about, uh, the feminist legal studies opinion piece that we wrote and the conversation piece we wrote on this, a lot of people left comments saying the NHS is not racist, absolutely not. How dare you say that? You're insulting the frontline workers. And that was not our intention at all. That's not what we were saying. We were saying that, unfortunately, the education and the mindset was that uh, it is a prejudice that women of color, for example, um, can endure more pain um, in labor. Uh, and this is something that has been the subject of a recent report that was just in the newspapers, right? So um, I guess we, we were in line with what was the thinking and what was been looked at, at at the same time. Absolutely. And you really know all about that. And that's your expertise. And I was looking a little bit at legal barriers relating to immigration status, such as the NHS's immigration healthcare surcharge, which migrants have to pay in order to get care. 
and people having to ask sometimes, you know, what's your status to know whether they can actually even treat you. And of course, in COVID-19, it was so, so important for everybody to present quickly for testing, to present when they had symptoms, to get uh, vaccinated even. And all of these little things like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get put in jail if I'm illegal or illegally in the country, which stops people from going to actually access care. And that's what we were also looking at. So again, as, as absolutely as you say, it's not because the NHS or people are racist or xenophobic or anything like that, but it is the institutional setup, the framework, meaning that because you have to pay for care, you have to ask people if they've paid for their care. And then you start to discriminate based on, did you pay? And then why didn't you pay? And then do you deserve uh, medical treatment or not, and it becomes a bit more of a moral question. I would, I would say, would you, would you not? Absolutely, I think it ties in very neatly with questions of justice that we were discussing in earlier episodes. I remember when we started looking at this, we said, "Oh well, we know that there is an egalitarian approach to healthcare in the UK. That's the foundation of the NHS. That's what I talk about in my research constantly about these principles of liberal egalitarianism." But then we saw a shift during the pandemic, which some would say, I'm including myself, with, with a more utilitarian approach, focus on consequences, on outcome of treatment. But we could not explain why ethnic minority migrant women were experiencing healthcare differently just because of the pandemic, just because of that shift in accessing healthcare. The barriers to equal access were different. And that, I think, is where the original lens of intersectionality really helped our research because they are experiences barriers that are unique to them. We're not saying that they're experiencing worse barriers or greater access. We're not looking at that. We're just looking at their unique experiences because it is truly unique to their identity, their complex identity. Exactly. And the main idea overall was to ensure that these groups of women were not hidden and they were not invisible because of the pandemic. And because in the pandemic, they were risking being subsumed just under the experiences of women or ethnic minorities or migrants. And certainly all of those groups experienced significant difficulties, but our groups of ethnic minority women and migrant women were unique. And that is what we wrote about in our paper. And that's our key focus and what we wanted to bring absolutely to the fore. And I would say, wouldn't you, that that's actually what intersectionality research is all about. It's all about noting the really unique experiences of multiply burdened individuals, raising them as issued to be addressed potentially in the future. And that is what you and I seek to do. We want to bring all of these people to the fore, bring their voices to the front so that maybe we can inspire a change in the law from the intersectional viewpoint of people who you and I certainly can relate to as intersectionally identifying women on, on our own. I could not have said it better. As usual, Adrian, you found the right words. Well, I, I think that brings us to a conclusion. And I want to thank you. I, I don't have words to thank you on how great it has been to have this discussion with you and for you to share your insight on intersectionality and your research. So I, I thank you and look forward to next episodes. Thank you so much. I've loved chatting with you. You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode. 